Hey, you are listening to Sorted Cinema, the demented all-genre film offshoot of the Dearly Departed Sound on Sight podcast. This week, it's part two of our extended look at the Mad Max franchise, uh, starting with the oddball third entry in the series, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, co-starring, of course, Miss Tina Turner. And then, finally, the reason we're here in the first place, we're, we're going to take a look at Mad Max Fury Road, George Miller's triumphant return to the franchise. After an extended absence, we are once again joined by original co-host Edgar Shepu. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey, you're listening to Sorted Cinema. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Mr. Ricky D. Hey, Simon. Two men enter, one man leaves. I was about to say three men enter, no men leave, because... (laughs) Because this is sort of this is the last regular sort of cinema. Yeah, it is. Oh my god, I completely forgot. It is. <laughs> How did you forget? <laughs> oh no, I've been so busy. I've been so busy. I worked three jobs. Yeah. Oh my god. Hence it's... the hence the no more sort of cinema. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Anyway, woo. Uh, so we are gonna do one more. Uh, wait a minute. Before I get to that, Edgar Shapiro is here. Hey, Edgar. Hey. Good evening, gentlemen. Happy Friday night. Happy Friday. Yes, we are. This is how we're spending our Friday night. Uh, woo. So, yeah, uh, we are going to be doing one more recording, uh, which we're not going to tell you about just yet. But this is going to be the last one where we, you know, sit down and review movies like uh, as we have done now for 499 recordings, including this one. Yep. That's a staggering number. of. That's a that's a lot. That's very impressive. Very, very impressive. And And kudos. I mean, I've only been doing it for, I don't know, 30, 40 of those 500 recordings. So I, I, I'm, I'm a speck in the history of the Sound and Sight podcast history. But I want to tip my hat to everything you two have done and, and, and Justine and all the other former uh, hosts. You're a little more than a speck, Edgar. You're, more, you're like a smudge. Oh, thank you. Uh, I didn't know you <laughs> thought so highly of me, Simon. Um, 500 episodes. Yeah. Of- Roughly a thousand five hundred movies reviewed, something like that. About eight hundred to a thousand hours of podcasting. Not to mention the hours of editing, oh boy, and uploading, and mixing, and all the other podcasts we've done—the TV podcasts. Uh, yeah, thousands oh. and thousands of hours. I'm not even going to count the TV podcasts. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's been a ridiculous, ridiculous time, but we've uh. We've enjoyed almost every little bit of it. Well, you know what? On the last show, I said that some people have Star Wars, and I had Mad Max growing up, and Mad Max is my favorite movie franchise of all time. And so I was so, so glad that we are ending the podcast with not just one review of a Mad Max film, but four reviews of all four Mad Max films. And within less than a day, our Mad Max post became our most popular post over at soundinsight.org. Yeah, obviously people are starved for uh, 
for discussion of not just Fury Road, but the whole franchise. So that's been, it's been encouraging to see that. Uh, we are going to get to Beyond Thunderdome, everyone's favorite Mad Max, uh, in, in just a moment. The, um, just, to, just to briefly mention, we still have con coverage going up. Zornitsa is still kicking ass over there. Uh, seems like they've had a bit of a, a dodgy lineup this year. Um, there's been a couple films everyone's uh, that that have you know prompted a lot of excitement. The new uh, Yoros Lanthimos and Son of Saul, new Todd Haynes, but it seems especially like their French lineup, uh, like as in from France, has been a little bit, a little bit tetchy in competition. But anyway, uh, still reviews going up, so do uh, do look out for that. Uh, anything else we should mention from the site before we just get into it, Ricky? No, I don't think so. All right, good. Uh, well, then, no more uh, no more postponement. Let's get to our uh, first review of the hour, which is, of course, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. Understood. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. He was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the whiting ones? Whiting for what? Whiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time's here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. That was a clip from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the third film of four in the Mad Max franchise. This is the only one, incidentally, that uh, features a co-director, uh, in this case, George Ogilvy. Uh, Ricky, maybe you know more about this, but as I understand it, uh, George Miller was having um, having some personal conflicts, and so there's entire portions of this film that, that Ogilvy just completely took took the reins on. I think while watching Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome, it kind of feels like we're watching two movies. You have the Mad Max film, which is basically like the first 30 minutes of the film and maybe the 50-minute car chase sequence. And then you have this weird Peter Pan meets Lord of the Flies storyline, which mm. does not feel like it belongs in a Mad Max film. It's really odd. And I, I can see George Miller butting heads with the uh, studio because, you know, Road Warrior was such a huge box office success. So there's clearly a lot of studio interference, and I think it's clear when you're watching a movie. You can see what is a George Miller film and what isn't. Right. Uh, so anyway, the, the basic premise of the film is that uh, Max uh, comes upon this, this civilization, or, or I guess we can call it just a, a place, really, a barter town, which is a, in, in, the, in the context of, of the Mad Max universe, a place that pretty much has it together. Um, it runs on pig shit, so there is that, uh, and it is uh, it is ruled over by Auntie, played by Tina Turner, who um, and the and issues in this place are resolved via 
gladiatorial one-on-one combat in, yes, the Thunderdome. Um, but that, of course, only, as you mentioned, Ricky, uh, only really encapsulates the first half hour, 35 minutes of the film, after which uh, Max encounters a whole other situation involving a bunch of kids. We'll get there. Um, I'm going to start because I don't ever do that. Um, I know that uh, for most Mad Max fans, this is uh, very much the out the, the outlier quality speaking. Uh, uh, and I have to say, while I was watching that first 35 minutes, all I kept thinking was, this movie is amazing. The world building is insane. Uh, this notion of of a uh, of this town that that literally runs on shit and uh and you know this this uh, this whole subterranean world beneath this uh beneath this civilization they've established and the thun- and of course the dome itself and master blaster and all this and all this insane ridiculous stuff I was like, this just feels like a wackier extension of the movies we already have and then we get to the kids and then i understood why people rank this below uh below the other mad maxes edgar was that more or less your experience uh, more or less, I have to agree with that. I, I on the whole, I still enjoy this one. Uh, I, I like it, but you know, just a few days ago, we talked about the first two, and we had nothing but love for it. This is one of the uh, rare instances during this two-parter sorted cinema uh, sequence where, yeah, we might not have as much love for the movie. It's, uh, and I'll echo what Ricky said a little bit earlier, and I believe I even wrote it in my own review of the film last week that was published last week. It kind of does feel like you're watching two movies, uh, two visions that are they're kind of budding heads. I know they do try to tie in the story of the lost children uh, from the plane crash and the barter town sequence near the end, but it feels a little, little bit uh, cumbersome. It doesn't feel very organic. Uh, and while I can appreciate on some level the sequence uh, during which Mad Max has to take care of these kids, kind of reminds me of a of an old Bond movie. There's this one Bond movie where she's not the main Bond girl, but there's someone who's trying to seduce James, but she's literally like a teenager, and they sort of make fun of it, and he doesn't even want to sleep with her. It's like the rare time that Bond doesn't want to sleep with a girl. So it's sort of like putting Bond out of his element all of a sudden. I feel like that's what they were going for in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It's Max, as we've known him for uh, a little over two movies by now, and he's now out of his element. Like I can see where there's some value in that attempt, and I, I, I like it okay, but it's true. It just doesn't have that same feeling. I like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome fine, but I, I don't love it, no. If we are to believe Internet Movie Database trivia, it says that the film was originally not supposed to be a Mad Max film, but simply a post-apocalyptic Lord of the Flies film about a tribe of children who are found by an adult. But there's also a piece of trivia that says that George Miller opted to drop out of directing the film when his best friend slash movie producer was killed in, I believe it was a helicopter accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, while scouting for location shooting. So who knows? I mean, I guess only George Miller knows, right? I'm not entirely sure what happens. I, I actually do still enjoy this movie a lot. And I'm going to start off by praising the soundtrack. <laughs> not the score, but the soundtrack, because I am a huge fan of Tina Turner. I love Tina Turner. 
And I actually totally dig the soundtrack to this movie because it's it's like, you know, when, when you think of movies from the 80s, you think of soundtracks like this. And I think this is one of the best soundtracks for any movie in the 80s. Like you think of stuff like Top Gun and whatnot. But I really do dig the soundtrack. I do not like the score. And I think the biggest problem for me while watching this movie is the actual score. Simon, you complained about the score on the last episode about the first Mad Max film, which I went back and listened to. And I think you're crazy. I think that's an amazing score. I'm sorry. Um, I think the score to this film is terrible. Like the tone of this movie feels so out of place with the rest of the series. I would bet that if you were able to remix the score with a much better and more appropriate score, like a more appropriate set of music, that this would actually feel like a better film. Because it's not a terrible film. It's like it's like you guys say, the opening, say, 30 minutes of the movie is pretty impressive. The whole Thunderdome sequence is amazing. That's like, we just, we just um, well, actually, we didn't just. We are in the process of publishing our list of the 100 most essential action scenes that most cinephiles should view, right? We're not going to call it the 100 greatest. We're calling it a 100 essential. And it's separated by categories. So we're releasing 10 posts. Each post focuses on a specific type of action so for example we just recently released the 10 best one-on-one fight sequences and i was like you know the fight sequence in this film in which master blaster or, or better yet blaster fights mad max that's like an amazing fight sequence like the way it's choreographed like the fact that they're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of extras screening the fact that they use all sorts of different weapons from like a, a chainsaw to like a giant speed and it's the whistle that ends up being like the the wild card like it's the whistle that helps mel gibson from mad max actually survive and win the battle and that whole sequence is amazing and it reminds me also strangely enough of the acdc thunderstruck music video which was released a few years later and of course you know we, we mentioned this last week in passing but of course we can always think of like the two-pack music video for california Right, mm-hmm. which was actually shot on the set of uh, Mad Max: Beyond the Thunderdome. Really? Was was I know, yeah, nice. So I, I really do th- dig this movie. But the weird thing is, this movie opens up, and it has it has two characters who who are very promising in the sense that they can be very iconic villains for this franchise. And I'm talking about Tina Turner's character, whose name Auntie. is Auntie Entity. And then we have Master Blaster, which is actually two people in one, right? But the weird thing about this movie is when the movie ends, when you do, when you do get to the, the pretty awesome car chase sequence towards the end of the film during the climax, after the climax, after the whole car chase ends, neither of these people are actually villains at the end of the movie. It, it was so strange. And, and it, it kind of feels like they set out to make, perhaps if this tri- piece of trivia on Internet Movie Database is correct, the the script was originally meant to be a different movie outside of the Mad Max franchise, and then they decided to make a part of Mad Max franchise, and then George Miller dropped out. But it kind of feels like they didn't really know what to do with the screenplay that they were given, and they didn't even know if they should make this like a G-rated film or the typical R-rated film that Mad Max, you know, usually is, because it's very, very much so for a family audience. Uh, not really. I mean. You have characters drowning in pig shit. You've got kids dropping F-bombs. Dude, this is the 80s. Come on. No, no, I, I, I realize that, but it's not... Let's let's not get this confused with, like, an American tale. Like, this is... 
It's not as violent. It's probably the least violent of the Mad Max films, but I wouldn't call it a kid's film. The least violent. Nobody dies in that 15 to 20 minute car chase action epic sequence. Like Technically, it's a train chase. Yeah, okay, I was going to bring that up. But yes, it's technically a train chase, but not really. But OK, whatever. During that chase sequence, now one person dies. And yeah, they might use profanity to the extent of where they say like shit and bullshit and whatnot. But I don't remember anyone dropping an F-bomb. Oh, and, one of the kids definitely drops an F-bomb. Okay, well, in order to get an R rating, you have to drop three F-bombs. Oh, well, then. And this is, once again, the 80s. I mean, can I remind you of movies like The Goonies? I mean, The Goonies, they swear, there's all kinds of weird, inappropriate material in The Goonies itself. Anyway. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, I for like, it was a different time. Like, I think they were trying to make this movie for a wider audience. And I'm sorry, I do not think that there's anything inappropriate in this movie that I wouldn't allow my, like, 10-year-old kid to see. Like, the first Mad Max film has, like, a rape sequence, for example, and that's straight up at the beginning of the film. You know, you might not want to watch your kid to watch that kind of, like, sequence on film, even if it's off camera. I mean, apart from, like, the fact that there's that barter town is 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 powered by pig shit i mean so what they actually they give a scientific explanation as to why and and the one thing i want to say really quick before we move on before i forget because i just remember this yesterday doesn't the sequence in which they drop master into the pit of pigs Mm -hmm. remind you of the incredibly disturbing scene in hannibal yes from last season yes it did just one uh, more cinematic reference to throw into Hannibal. If you haven't seen Hannibal, the TV show, you're really missing out because it's, I think, one of the greatest TV shows ever. Okay, a few points. A, the score. Uh, the score is a straight-up John Williams rip. 100%. However, I think the score is perfectly fine for this movie because there's so much about this movie that feels like it's an attempt to ape Spielberg. For instance, even in the uh, even in the thunder the Thunderdome fight sequence, like as much as like it does have that post apocalyptic verve that Mad Max has, for instance, like the the whole issue of of uh, of Max tr- just just trying to get his hands on that whistle so that he can in sort of, sort of incapacitate Master and win the upper hand, which is one of the coolest things about the fight. It's such an Indiana Jones move. <laughs> Like, come on, you know that it is. Like, well, and, and everything with the kids and the and like the adventure romp vibe of the entire middle section of the movie. Well, the thing is, forget about Indiana Jones. Mad Max in this film is your typical generic action movie star. I mean, to the point where he's all of a sudden sort of like a, a superhero. He's got these crazy reflexes. He can sense people sneaking up behind him. Like he's got a spidey sense. He knows how to fight. You know, he knows like karate and kung fu and all he's this. Got crazy laser sense. vision. He carries like a hundred weapons. He's got laser vision. <laughs> he can, he somehow finds a way yet to sneak a weapon into Bartertown, despite the fact that they frisk him like a hundred million times. So, but the thing about that whole opening sequence, like again, the first 30 minute sequence, everything that takes place in Bartertown, I think is amazing. But once you leave Bartertown, I think the score is terrible. And I'll give you a prime example. There's one scene, which is actually beautifully shot it's most i think it is i think it is without a doubt the most beautiful scene in the movie and it's when the kids run out into the desert and mad max chases after them and they run up to an airplane and that's when mad max sees the airplane for the very first time and it's shot with the sunset and so you see the sun in the background and you see the silhouette of the children as they're climbing this airplane and then you get this terrible terrible piece of music overpowering the whole entire sequence i was like 
Watch it on mute and tell me how much more powerful it is on mute. I kind of uh, enjoy the score all right. I think it's it's functional. It serves its purpose. I, I will back you up, Ricky, however, on the fact that it's it's maybe ever so slightly more on the family-friendly side of things. And you referred earlier to the to the <clears throat> climactic action sequence, that chase, that train uh, chase sequence. And it's funny. I was watching it. I rewatched this one also a couple weeks ago for those articles I was writing. And I was watching that sequence and because I'd watched them in successive order in a very short time span. And I, there is something about, I think it's in the way it cuts away from the more graphic uh, deaths in that sequence or the more, uh, or, or the, the, the instances in which characters, whether they're the primary or peripheral characters participating in that chase, the, the instances when they can get really hurt or savagely hurt because, you know, I don't know, a car is going to run over them or they, they fell off the train tracks or, or whatever is going on. And I find, I, I felt that the movie was cutting away maybe just a wee bit earlier than what the first two movies would have cut away. Uh, and this is, of course, after the entire sequence where he spends, Max, that is, uh, spends so much time with the children, which, again, I think is all right. It's kind of an interesting idea. But it's true, when you take those little morsels of, of editing techniques and, and storytelling styles, when you add them all up, it's, it does kind of paint the, the picture of their, they want to give us a Mad Max movie, but eh, you know they're going to hold back their punches just a little bit this time. It, there is a bit of that vibe going on in the movie. Okay, can I mention some, some things about this movie that I liked before I get to the things that don't make any sense? Um, I really like the the overall sort of steampunk western aspect. Like it, it feels like as much as it doesn't necessarily feel like it, feel like it it honors the the first two films all the time. I like that it has a vibe in and of itself. Even if I don't like how much that vibe sort of heads heads all the way into uh, you know Mel Gibson romping in the kids with the desert uh, and them having made up their own like pigeon English. And him having to explain what's happened to the world. Um, th- by the way, Matt Max himself has way more dialogue in this movie than he has in any other, probably all the other Mad Max movies combined. Um, that that aspect I liked. Um, what I liked less, though, is that because I was less riveted by the film overall, I kept getting distracted by the things that don't make any sense. For instance, uh, as you already mentioned, Ricky, when Auntie finally has Max cornered at the end of the movie, she just kind of leaves him there. Which... Yeah. Um, which, all right, I guess I'm just going to have to forgive that. But mostly it's the last few minutes of the movie that don't really make any sense. So the kids fly out to the to the abandoned city to start over. Um, what? Why? Why would you do that? People abandon the cities for a reason. There's okay, nothing there. I mean, there's shelter maybe, but there's nothing else. The reason why she leaves him behind and doesn't actually kill him is because she was never really chasing after him. She was always chasing after Master. She had she had a problem. She had what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, but yeah, but he just fucked up her whole society. Yeah, but she respects him. She respects him because he's like this lone wolf, this warrior, and she respects him, and therefore she lets him go. And she says, "You and I are very much alike. We're very much the same." So that is why she lets him go because it was never her intent to actually go through like this epic 20-minute chase sequence where she's chasing like a train to the middle of nowhere in a desert because she wanted to capture and or kill Mad Max. And as far as the kids go, well, where else are the kids going to go? 
where they live is the best possible place that you can actually live in this type of world to the point where we're going to talk about this very shortly in the fork film Mad Max Fury Road. That is where Furiosa wants to set out and find. She wants to find this type of place that has trees and a forest and a jungle and water and so on, so forth. Well, okay, wait a second. Um, I, I mean, first of all, all I could think about when, when they set out, when they, they decamp in the city or the husk of the city or whatever, and the camera pans out, was all I could think was, well, I really hope they enjoy starving to death in that old skyscraper because uh, there's not going to be anything there. That's the whole point. What, what what skyscraper? What are you talking about? When they're when they're congregated at the end of the movie in that building, back to Sydney. In Sydney, yeah, in the yeah. abandoned Sydney, there's not going to be anything there, man. That's the whole point. Isn't that the okay. exact same place where they were at the start of the film? No, they're in Sydney. Oh, well, that's stupid. <laughs> how how did you not see the buildings? No, I know, I know, but I thought that was somewhere nearby where they were no before. Wait, no, like, they, like, fl- they flew all the way over to where they figured they would find civilization, and they just find the abandoned Sydney. Well, I think it, it fulfills some sort of a thematic arc in a sense. I mean, they were searching for the city. That's where they were told civilization, uh, or predominantly where civilization lived, and that's what they're looking for. I guess it's... No, no, it makes sense on, on that level. I just mean in, in a practical sense, people fled oh. the cities for a reason. There's nothing there, man. They're a bunch of little retards, I mean, on a practical level. But, um, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of hard to defend. It's it's pretty. It's a, it's a nice-looking ending. But I guess on a practical level, I, I can't really argue against that point. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, where they were, as you were saying, Ricky, the place where they actually were, where they had water and shelter and weapons uh they were pretty well situated as as max even tells them like this is the best you're gonna do and then they leave well, they're kids man they're headstrong kids what do you what do you want what do you expect from them i like, expect if, them not to be in a fucking mad max movie <laughs> can't argue with that man anyway anything else we should talk about before we go I really think Tina Turner is really great in this movie. Like, I really yes! do. She's I, freaking awesome. I, I was going into this movie expecting, because people, they're called oh, Mad Thunderdome, it's the one with Tina Turner. She's great. And if the, and one of the major problems with this movie is that there's not enough Tina Turner. I totally agree. Like, this whole movie should have been about Tina Turner. Like, and the, the thing is, it's weird, because it's called Beyond the Thunderdome, right? And, like, I think it should have just been called Thunderdome, and it should have all taken place at Bartertown, or Mad Max Bartertown, or something. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's as soon as you get beyond Thunderdome that the problems start. Yeah, as soon as you, I'm telling you, it's true. As soon as you get the whole Peter Pan sequence and Lord of the Flies and all these children telling Mad Max their crazy stories about what the world used to be like, like he already knows and we already know, and then they set out across the desert because they... And it's weird, because they wait for this this... I don't know if they want you want to call him a prophet or a savior or what have you. They wait for this guy, the captain, to arrive. He arrives. And they, they, and they mis- totally they ignore mistake- everything he says. Yeah, well, they mistake him first. They think it's actually Mad Max, and he tells them, no, I'm not that person. I'm someone else. And then they're like, okay, well, we've been waiting for this guy for, like, years, and you're not him. So we're just all of a sudden going to, like, cross the desert, even though we don't have enough water to actually survive. Because now all of a sudden it makes sense. No, it does not make sense now. <laughs> The script is weak, but I really do like the chase sequence towards the end of the film. Like, I think it was really, really exciting and fun to watch. It was comic and cartoonish at times. And 
Although, like I said, nobody dies. There's some freaking killer vehicles on the run. Uh, anyway, uh, should we be wrapping this up? I mean, I just feel like Fury Road's going to take us forever. Yeah, no, I, I really do like this movie. That's all I want to say, regardless of like its flaws and the fact that I don't like the score and it does feel like two different movies and there was like a co-director for whatever reason brought in to take over. I still think that it's a pretty entertaining film. It's 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 not perfect. It's no Road Warrior. It's no Mad Max. And it, sure as hell ain't no Mad Max Fury Road. But, it, you know, if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it just to be sort of a completist, I guess. If I could sum it up really quickly, I would say that Mad Max and possibly the Road Warrior really felt like they were ahead of their time. And Beyond Thunderdome feels exactly of its time. Yeah, and I actually have one quick question to ask before we move on to the next review. So on the last episode, you said, now this is before you had actually watched Beyond the Thunderdome. Um, you said that there couldn't be a more vast difference in tone from Mad Max to Mad Max Fury Road. Do you still feel that way after watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? I mean, all four movies are different. Are Which is what different. I said last week yeah. in terms of like the most vastly different between two films. I think it's Thunderdome and everything else, specifically Thunderdome and Fury Road. But, I, I, but and yet Thunderdome, and I, what's weird though is that Thunderdome is, is sort of the one that Fury Road has the most in common with in some ways, um, but not really tonally. We'll get there. Um, I mean, they're sort of similarly off the wall. It's just that one of them is a lot better at it. Uh, Edgar, do you have any last comments on Thunderdome before we move on? Uh, not particularly. I love the theme song. Uh, I think that's pretty pretty kick-ass. I actually listened to it a few times since rewatching the movie a few weeks back. And I agree, Tina Turner is actually pretty solid in this movie. I love that little line where she turns around looks at Mel Gibson and asks him, like, really, seriously, you can shovel shit, can you? Like, that really sets the tone for, for what's to come in this movie in, in more ways than one. But it's, you're not wasting your time if you if if you at least watch this one once. Uh, it's it's more than just being a completist. It does have some rede redeeming qualities. Can I just quickly mention that the guy who is, like, the announcer at, at Thunderdome, for some reason, gets all the best lines. <laughs> Yeah, I just have to quickly quote Mr. Roger Ebert because he gave this movie four stars. He four loves this stars, movie. Loves this movie. He said it's better than the first two films. He wrote, it's not supposed to happen this way. Sequels are not supposed to be better than the movies that inspired them. But the third movie in the series isn't supposed to create a world more complex, more visionary, more entertaining than the first two. He goes on to say that basically it does. And he ends his review by saying there is a lot more in Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. The descent into the pig world, for example, and the visit to a sort of post-war hippie commune, and, of course, an inevitable final chase scene involving car, train, truck, cycle, and incredible stunts. Love this movie. Oh my god, I just realized something. This movie, it's actually, even though it was made first, it's the third Babe movie. Babe is somewhere in that pit, he he's in the farm and then he's in the city and then he's in barter town trying to eat a midget. <laughs> That's the story of Babe. So it's it's a pre uh, no it's not it's a, prequel. a it, it's a it's a pre sequel to the Babe movies. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the movie's called Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. We enjoyed it, if not necessarily as a Mad Max movie. I think uh, it's worth definitely worth seeing at least once. It's got a lot to recommend it, even if we're not totally bowled over by it. 
And finally, to get to the main event, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to hear a clip from Mad Max Fury Road, about which we I expect we will drone on for quite some time. You're listening to Sorted Cinema. We'll be right back. even exists I was born there so why'd you leave I didn't I was taken as a child stolen you done this before many times now that I drive a war rig this is the best shot I'll ever have. And them? They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption. That was a clip from Mad Max Fury Road, the first Mad Max film in 30 years, uh, courtesy of returning director George Miller. Uh, after... Two Babe movies, two Happy Feet movies, and several other things I'm sure I'm forgetting about. Uh, Which is of Eastwick. Which is of Eastwick, that's right. Uh, co-written by Miller with Brendan McCarthy and uh, Nico Lathuris. And it finds Tom Hardy taking the Max role away from Mel Gibson, who uh, admittedly did give Hardy his blessing, uh, whatever that's worth. I wonder if he had veto power. Anyway, um and uh, the film, of course, co-stars, uh, and I do really do mean at the very least co-stars, uh, Charlize Theron as Imperator Furiosa. And it takes place at an indeterminate point after the original films. Uh, I would say it's it's a while after the original because it really seems like society has uh, has slid further down the crapper, if that's, if that's at all possible. There's really no infrastructure at all to speak of, uh, let alone roads, despite the name of the film. And uh, it finds Max as as a captive of the uh, of the army of quote war boys uh, held by Immortan Joe, and, and uh, where, where he's used as a blood bag, which is a concept we'll try to explain later. And then Furiosa shows up. There's some ladies. It's a whole thing. I'm not even going to try to explain this yet. Um, Ricky, I'm going to start with you. Um, 
I mean, it's been a really, really long time since I can remember the sort of broad consensus that this movie has inspired in terms of, I haven't heard a single person say uh, this movie was garbage. Even people who sort of disliked it seem to at least respect it. Um, so are you going to join in on the, on the praise chorus on this one? Oh, come on. You know the answer. Of course. Yes. Fuck, this movie rocks, dude. This movie is mind blowing. It's, it's seminal. It's, it's groundbreaking. It's a movie that's going to forever change action movies moving forward. You know, there are several big movies that are still yet to be released this year in 2015. You know, some movies were luckily released just before Mad Max Fury Road hit the theaters. For example, Avengers Age of Ultron. But, you know, like thinking ahead, there's, you know, like there's a movie like some movie called Star Force or something that's coming out in December. <laughs> and, you know, there's Ant-Man and there's like the new rock movie. And I feel so bad for the filmmakers of these movies because first of all i don't think well i don't think they're going to be great films we'll see you know maybe they'll be good maybe they will be great who knows but how the hell are you going to top off your action set pieces to an audience who's just watched mad max fury road you know what i mean it's a game changer like this movie is mind-blowing it's unbelievable from the first frame to the very last frame, each and every single still, like you can pause this film at any point and you can use that as your screensaver for your computer. You can blow it up and decorate your house with like images from stills from this movie because it's that beautiful to look at. The action is so intense. I was gripping onto my seat. I told all my friends, if you go see this movie, make sure you go to the washroom before the movie starts. Make sure you don't even buy popcorn or anything to eat because you're not going to take your eyes off the screen. It's not happening. Your popcorn's going to sit on the floor. You're not going to want to look away. It's, it's just incredible. It, it, it's incredible for so many reasons. And I know George Miller said in many interviews that he always wanted to make a movie that despite the fact that it does have dialogue and sound, it would play out like a silent movie to the point where if you pressed mute on your remote and you watched a movie, you could still understand a story. And he tried to do this with The Road Warrior. And I don't think it works with The Road Warrior. But I think with Mad Max Fury Road, if you just listen to the score and watch the movie and take away the very little dialogue that they actually insert into this film, which is very, very very little like there's very few words in this film i think furiosa has like 40 lines of dialogue oh no sorry tom hardy's Mel, uh, mad max has 40 lines of dialogue she has a hundred words i think that she says throughout the whole entire film there's very little dialogue right and now simon you just told us a very interesting quick story before we started the podcast i'll turn it over to you about what george miller plans to do with the dvd release of this film Oh, apparently Frank Darabont style, he plans to have a, uh, a on on the DVD or Blu-ray release, there's going to be um, a black and white edit with only the score isolated, no dialogue. And anyone who's seen the movie will, I mean, I'm having a difficult time imagining it in black and white because the colors are so vivid, but uh, it's not at all difficult to imagine the film with no dialogue. I mean, there are a whole chunk, I saw this, I saw this twice, and the there are whole chunks of my first viewing where the sound mix wasn't so good and the, and also you know the the accents are quite thick there are things i couldn't make out but i had no difficulty uh understanding at the very least the stakes i i was able to clear that up on a on a second viewing mm-hmm. um but yeah it's it's not at all difficult to to imagine uh, that that cut of the film uh edgar we haven't heard from you yet uh you 
uh, are, are just wrapped, I believe, uh, viewing the third. So I guess uh, your verdict is as uh, a foregone conclusion. Uh, it certainly is, uh, Simon. This has been a, a long time coming. Despite the fact that last week I established that I'm relatively new to the franchise in the grander scheme of things. Uh, despite that, because uh, you know we've been hearing about this movie for several years. I mean, I, I if if I'm not mistaken, the first few shots, you know, were were finally wrapped up like back in 012. I mean, we're talking about three years ago, more or less, give or take, let's say. So this has been a long time coming. And I remember at, at Comic-Con in 2014, they released a, a trailer, which went online. It like, wasn't one of those Comic-Con exclusives where if you weren't there, you couldn't see it. It, it went up online. And uh, I mean, I, I, I shat myself when I saw that trailer and I figured, well, this movie's still a year away, so let's not get too excited just yet. But holy smokes, like what is coming on the horizon in this in next summer? And then another trailer came out and it was even better than the first. And this and I was worried. Uh, I went into this cautiously optimistic. It's been 30 years since the Mad Max movie. And what did that get me thinking about? It got me thinking about Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, a dormant film franchise that came <laughs> back after several years. Live Free or Die Hard, which I actually don't hate, but maybe that isn't saying too much. A dormant franchise that came after several years. The Phantom Menace, a dormant film franchise that came. How many of those, how many of those were really, really good? Pre-production uh, problems with Fury Road. Over budget reshoots what what exactly notwithstanding the trailers what exactly about everything we read and heard about how this movie was made indicated that it would be as freaking amazing as it ended up being maybe that's why it's even more amazing than we thought it would be because it sounded like this was going to be shit uh but yes this is amazing uh i've seen it three times as you alluded to uh, a few moments ago simon uh i you know through the, I'm, I'm, I'm good for the moment, but I can see myself buying a fourth ticket before this leaves theaters. Like, I'm not joking. Uh, I think this is amazing. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a huge Bond fan. 2015, there's a new Bond movie coming out. I want that to be so badly my favorite movie of the year. I'm extremely worried now that it won't be my favorite action movie this year because Mad Max Fury Road exists. This is... Uh, uh, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. It's sort this of depressing. Way. It's depressing. It, it's it kind of is depressing. It kind of. I, sorry, James, man, but I think you've already fucked up because you're not in Fury Road. I mean, uh, it's this. I'll, I'll I'll put it as succinctly as I can. Uh, maybe with the exception of Beyond Thunderdome, where there is a lot of plot, uh, but this is. Uh, the first two movies are very good at show, don't tell, especially Road Warrior. Road Warrior, Road Warrior is very good at show, don't tell. This movie goes beyond show, don't tell. I mean, you you guys were talking earlier about a potential score-only Blu-ray release, which I'm de definitely interested in. Uh, but the fact that I can only imagine how lean this movie script is. It must have been written on the corner of a, of a, of a, of a, of a napkin. Um, it, it's so 
tight. And yet there is a story. There are some emotions. Something else we don't get in the earlier movies. You know, there, there are hints at emotional backstories. But this movie actually has some heart. And yet there's barely no dialogue. I mean, it's, it's, it's magic. This is cinema magic. Guys, take it away. I'm done. Well, you know, the thing is, you talk about how amazing this movie is, and that's what we're going to do for the next hour or so, but there's a few things we have to remember, is that George Miller has been thinking about and we're in the process of making and or pre-production or shooting or post-production. He's been making this movie for about 15 years. There's been all kinds of setbacks, delays, overhauls, recasting. He was originally supposed to make this movie well, Mel, with Mel Gibson as the lead actor, but there is just so, so many problems. But the thing is, George Miller actually owns the Mad Max franchise. So he was supposed to make this movie, I believe, it was originally with Fox. And then, of course, he had problems with the studio, so he bailed. And then he kept thinking about it and thinking about it his whole entire time. He had it in his head, and he was working on it. Like They have 3,500 storyboards for this movie. So it took 15 years to make, and finally Warner Brothers actually gave him the money to make the movie and pretty much gave him full creative control. And I think that's why the movie's so amazing, because it took him so long. It's like he pretty much perfected it in his head before he actually ever picked up a camera and started rolling film. You know what I mean? Like, guys, think about it. 3,500 storyboards. Storyboards. It's amazing. Storyboards illustrated by a comic book artist, Brendan McCarthy. And of course, he had his partner screenplay writer, Nicola Thoris, who was also, I believe, the actor in the first movie. So there's like three people behind the screenplay who all seem to have the same, the same vision for what this movie should be. First of all, when you're George Miller and you are this mastermind, like this visionary, this incredible filmmaker who's already proved himself in the past with Mad Max, The World Warrior, and to some extent, beyond Thunderdome in terms of at least making this type of movie. You know what I mean? He's already got a proven track record. Oh, yeah. And you have 15 years to work on this movie. And then you're given $150 million. And then you have the Cirque du Soleil working alongside you. And then you get this incredible cinematographer to come out of retirement and shoot one of the most beautiful-looking movies. Oh ever seen in my life john seal you are amazing i will forever remember you for bmx bandits hell yeah bmx <laughs> bandits way back in his early career fucking love that movie i wrote a review of it a while back on the website simon i remember when you and i were talking about the whole bmx movies that i wrote about i think it was like last summer actually uh, of course he won an oscar for the english patient he's worked on tons of movies with huge huge directors he did retire. He retired, I believe, 15 years ago. He comes out of retirement, and he shoots one of the most stunning films I've ever seen in my whole entire life. This movie is a one of a kind. And let's just, let's just, let's just focus on like the last, say, 40 to 50 years, right? Think back on the one movie every decade that just blew everyone away, like the one Hollywood sort of like mainstream film. You know, you think of like The Matrix, right? You think of like Jurassic Park. Like those were game changers. Mm -hmm. The original Star Wars film. Like those movies were game changers. They forever changed cinema to some extent by influencing so many filmmakers moving forward. 
Now you have Mad Max Fury Road. And to, I, I, I honestly believe that the Road Warrior was a game changer too. It might not have been a box office sensation like Matrix, like Jurassic Park, and like uh, Star Wars, but the right people saw it and the right people loved that movie. And they grew up influenced and inspired by George Miller and his vision of this post-apocalyptic world. And now we have Mad Max Fury Road. And I think this movie is going to change the medium of cinema. And we have a video game coming out, which looks just as good as the freaking movie. I think it's going to change video games. Um, We have a comic book coming out. which I mean, this whole movie is the skeleton of this movie was basically a 3,500 page comic book. You know what I mean? It's going to change the medium of comic books. This thing is just going to be legendary. It's it's already legendary. Uh, I would say that despite the the fact that he worked on it so long, there are still things about filmmaking that happen on the fly or that happen, you know, in a much shorter time frame. Um, I think once, th- I mean, for instance, I was reading an interview, I believe at HitFix with, with Seal, and he was talking about how he convinced, uh, like Miller really wanted to shoot it with one camera, old school, um and you know he really wanted to avoid the whole you know we've we've talked Ricky about the fact that um you know filmmakers will will work with multiple cameras so that they have more coverage so that they have more editing options and that feel that sometimes makes it feel like they have a less specific vision seal convinced him for certain se- for especially for sort of the, the more complicated sequences that it would be in his best interest to have multiple cameras going so there you know decisions like that that I, that I think really uh really helped a lot, you know, helps the film, uh, as some pointed out, sort of feel modern while still feel, while still feeling very distinctive. Also the fact that, that he decided to, uh, to have his wife, uh, his wife, uh, Margaret Sixel edit the film. Uh, basically she, he said to her, look, if I, you know, I, you know, he, I'm sure you could have gotten any of dozens of very experienced, uh, action editors to come in and, and cut the film. Uh, his wife had never edited an action film before, and that was the whole idea. He wanted someone with uh, with a different eye to oh come God. in and yeah, to come in and, and just and and completely cut the film in a way that that no one had necessarily seen before. And um, I believe it was Seal also who talked about how um, the the average shot length of the, in the film is two point three seconds, I believe, which is two point five. You know, is it two point five? I heard two point three. Anyway, oh, maybe. it's one of those. Um, it's it's not that long. Whatever, uh, you know, despite the fact that there are some pretty rapid cuts, um, you're never confused about what to look at because whatever is is the is the focus of the shot is always dead center. Uh, things like that that are just like that are not not even in the realm of consideration for most action filmmakers. Because you know why? OK, A, you're right. He puts everything that the viewer needs to focus on dead center of the frame, which George Miller has always done throughout his whole entire career. The thing is when he's shooting these long stretches of just plain action, which just whole movies almost from start to finish a big long chase sequence, right? It does stop at times, but for when it does stop, it stops for a very short period of time. When he shoots this long stretch of an action set piece, be it like a chase sequence, right? He's doing most of it in one one long take. So yeah, he has 10 cameras shooting the action scene, but it's one continuous take. It's just that when they go into the editing room, they chop it down to 2.3 seconds. So they say they'll take 
uh, 2.3 seconds from camera one and then cut to a different angle to camera two and then cut to camera five and to camera four and so on and so forth. But it's still, the reason why it makes sense, I think, for us as viewers is because they're taking from one take, right? Whereas some filmmakers, they will go in, they will shoot the scene and then they'll reshoot it again and shoot it again and they'll have like 30 takes of this one specific scene and it's never done exactly the same way. So even if the cameras are mounted in the exact same place, it doesn't mean that the camera is going to move in the same way. It doesn't mean the car is going to move in the exact same direction. It doesn't mean the actors are going to completely 100% replicate each and every single one of their movements. So when you get into the editing room, you always have to worry about continuity errors, right? You know, if you're taking two different takes and in one take, Furiosa has the gun on her left hand and the next take she has it on her right hand. Well, that could be problematic for an editor. So the editor has to find ways to work around that. So I think the reason why when you watch a lot of these action movies and it does become jumbled and, and murky and sort of like it, come, it becomes like a visual mess, at times it's because the editor is trying to find ways to work around problems, right? You know, continuity errors, things that maybe you shouldn't see like in the background or what have you. But from my understanding is that these are real cars moving at a hundred miles per hour. It's not CGI. It's real stunt men and stunt women doing these stunts. And so that's why I think it makes it easier for us as viewers to follow. It's, it's not just a matter of the editing and the camera work, but it's also the fact that they actually shoot these action sequences live. I think they may be going at a hundred kilometers an hour. I don't know about miles, but uh, (laughs) that would be, that would be very impressive. Um, and although uh, that's another thing that, that is worthy of mention, although there's a lot and there's so much we still haven't even mentioned yet. Um, there is, I mean, there's a lot of, of practical work in terms of stunt people, uh, in terms of, I mean, that they built something like 150 vehicles for this film um, and then destroyed most of them. Um, but there, there is a fair amount of CGI in the film. There is actually quite a lot of CGI in the film. I think the difference is that uh, a lot of it is quite beautiful. The, Held the sandstorm sequence, uh, which which uh, if if there's a problem with that sequence, it's the fact that it comes so early in the film and it's the most incredible effect in the film. Uh, I mean, that's theoretically something you've seen before, but it it's just so much more evocative uh, for some reason, especially you wouldn't think that an explosion could be so beautiful. But the way that vehicle just sort of, you know, it it at first it blows up and then and then the flames sort of cascade. Through this entire sandstorm, and it it sounds banal to describe it when you're watching it. It's genuinely sort of poetic, even though it's all computer graphics. And we're so used to uh, mediocre CGI that's oh. just all over the frame. I mean, think about what we saw with Avengers three or four weeks ago. Um, I have to mention uh, my my co-host at the Televerse, uh, Kate Kulzik, was telling me that she has family members who are gonna see uh, who are going to see Avengers after they see Mad Max. And she already feels bad for them (laughs) because, because if only because the attention to detail on the effects alone is, is such a huge disparity. But the thing about the dust storm is it's the storm itself. That is CGI, but the actual car chase is still a real life car chase in which George Miller and his crew are racing after these cars to get these camera shots. And you're watching these stuntmen these stunts it's 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 the background that's all cgi it's the actual dust storm so i'm okay with that it's not like they cgi'd an actual car and a bunch of people chasing after mad max but mad max is really like in a room in hollywood and there's a big huge green screen in front of him and he's not really moving it's just like a fan on on him so his hair looks like he's blowing in the wind you know what i mean that's not the case here they're actually in the desert 
racing in the desert. So I, that's why it looks so good. And I'm sure it helps when you go into editing and all of a sudden you can touch up the colors and make it brighter, make the blue more blue and whatever color correction, uh, just fine tuning, et cetera, et cetera. But he still had to have captured something beautiful to begin with for it to look this good. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm sure even when you take away the CGI, if you were just watching that sequence that they shot without the actual dust storm, I'm, I bet you it still looks amazing. Something else I find interesting is you mentioned color correction and or uh, color timing. I'm not sure if there's a difference between those two things or if they're the same, just a diff two different terms for the same thing. But um, uh, when the first trailer came out, a lot of people were commenting on the fact that the teal and orangeness of the film is so pronounced. Uh, and that's that's a that's a, a look you've seen in a lot of contemporary uh, Hollywood films, especially in like Michael Bay movies. And this movie amps that to like the it's it's like the most color corrected movie you've ever seen, except for maybe like a Robert Rodriguez, like Sin City type thing where it's like actively cartoonish. And it feels like it's Miller saying, hey, I can do the stuff y'all are doing, except I'm going to make I'm going to do it even to a more extreme degree. And it's going to look awesome while I'm doing it. Also, I'm 70 years old. <laughs> yeah well but first of all i don't think cartoonish is the way to describe uh, a movie like 300 it's more like a graphic novel and although i'm not a big fan of that movie i do like the look of it to some degree because for what they're going for um secondly um they like i mean going back to the cinematography not the actual cgi like he shot it day for night like the whole entire film is shot day for night and he shot at a lot of times during magic time right and the reason why he did this is because a good portion of the movie takes place late at night or just like early evening and so in his head he's like well if they're chasing after them then mad max and furiosa won't necessarily want to keep say the headlights on on the war rig because they don't want them to see them from a distance and know which direction they're headed so he's like well how can we actually light up this big giant war rig if we can't actually use the headlights and he was like well the only way to do it is to shoot a day for night and so that's what they had to do they had to find a way to do that uh, as opposed to, say, using headlights and whatever lights you can mount on a, on a car to light up the sequence, which might have looked beautiful, but it wouldn't really make much sense given the context of like the chase sequence. And, and yeah, like the look of the film, you're right. It, it does resemble, and I don't know if I would say Michael Bay. I, 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 can't, I can't agree with you on that at <laughs> Just all. Just on principle? <laughs> no, not even on principle. I get like maybe the fact that Michael Bay likes that orangey hue you know like that golden orange that is uh, that that's that swallows up most of the the scenes in his movie but in this movie it sort of makes sense to have that color for the majority of the film because they are racing through a desert you know what i mean but then we do get that beautiful beautiful scene it's very short but when when they cross a certain part of the desert they, uh, and it all takes place in like a blue night and you just you just see the shiny stars in the background and there is this one tree there is one tree just out in the middle of nowhere there's a, there's a purpose for the tree being there it's not just to look pretty they actually use the tree to help the war rig get across the, I don't know if it's quicksand and or it's, like a, it's like an old swamp or something. An old swamp. Right. And so it actually comes to use the tree, you know? So it's like, it's like every single little detail in this movie is put there for a specific reason. It's to help move the story forward, to help these characters move, move forward and to help, I don't know, just enhance the movie and for the viewers. And it's just, it's just mind blowing this movie. It's mind blowing.
we we have we are tw- uh, by my count uh, 26 minutes into this review and we have not mentioned any characters so uh, let's uh let's get to that i want to start by talking about uh i i suppose the theoretical man of the hour and i think probably the source of the most uh dispute in terms of his value and that would be max uh max. Play- oh yeah uh, oh, i you're gonna say nux oh no no everyone loves nux we're gonna get to nux later everyone loves nux uh, no, Max, uh, because I think, I mean, even before uh, this movie properly came out, you had uh, men's rights idiots complaining about the fact that based on, you know, early screenings and early word about the film that uh, that the Charlize Theron character in Period of, Furi- of Furiosa uh, and the other female, the many other female characters in this film uh, really sort of crowd out Max. And I, I just have to say that um, after two viewings, it really it really wasn't until that second viewing that I was more able to really appreciate what Hardy brings to the table. I think that some of his voice work is a little bit suspect. I I feel like he's done, he's now done like half a dozen too many roles with menacing people making funny voices. And now he just does that all the time. Uh, It's, it's, it really only starts for some reason at the midway point of the movie, when you get that quiet uh, nighttime day, day for night sort of quiet sequence when he starts, starts to talk a little bit more. And then the Bane voice comes out for some reason, but Mm. I think that physically speaking, it's a really great performance, and there's all sorts of details to admire. Um, and, oh my god! And that's—I mean—I think that's half the ba- that's more than half the battle. Oh my god! I thought for for a minute there, I thought you were being serious, but then I, and I thought you were going to like criticize his performance, but then I realized you're just joking. Uh, what do you mean? Well, because you started off talking about like how I don't know some men's right group. Oh no 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 no! Fuck them! Tom no Harvey. no no! They're useless. Um, no, no, no. That's what I mean. Wait, I'm th- so confused. What do you mean they're useless? Are you being serious or I'm being serious when I say that the men's rights people are useless. What men's right people? <laughs> what are you talking about? No, they're real. What have you not? Do you not know about any of this? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. What oh you man. Talking? I don't even know how to explain this phenomenon to you. Um, <laughs> it's, oh, oh man. Um, Is basically, people- basically you're talking about people who, uh, who are contra feminists. Uh, they they believe that uh, women have made too many gains in society, and uh, and now men are paying the price for it. And they and they were outraged. Some of them were outraged that this uh, paragon of manliness, Mad Max, uh, was now being feminized and taken over by these female characters. Uh, th- these are real people who really think that that this is something we should be concerned about. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. And they must have shit a brick. When they found out that Miller, uh, in the creation of this film, actually, um, actually uh, consulted with Eve Ensler, who is the creator of the vagina monologues, when <laughs> this is true, uh, when he was uh, crafting the, the characters of the of the brides, these sort of um, former slaves of, of Immortan Joe, who uh, more characters we haven't mentioned yet, uh, when when he was trying to craft them in their inner lives and talk about how uh, and and sort of. He, and sort of thinking about how they might be self-directed and how they might have a part in this story, mm. uh, that must have just been a, a terrible, terrible moment in their lives. <laughs> wow. Gracious. Yeah, so that's real. That's a real thing that happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did not know that. So yeah, but anyway, Edgar, uh, Hardy as Max, how do you feel? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um it's it's a very interesting performance. I, one of you two uh, men used the term physical, and I would have to wholeheartedly agree with that. Hardly, hardly, 
Hey, here we go, having fun. No, I do agree with that with that sentiment. Uh, I mean, primarily because of the fact that he really doesn't speak all that much. He does begin to share some a few thoughts and feelings near the end of the movie, although even then he's still not saying that much. For the first 45 minutes, he's mostly grunting. Yeah, pretty much. I think he yells something while he's attached to the front of the car as a blood bag. Blood... Uh, he, he says, that's my head at one point because <laughs> yeah, he that. flings a spear right next to his head. Uh, that's about look, it. Actually, actually, there is a whole, there's a whole part while he's strapped to the car where he keeps muttering and even after two views, I could not make out a word of it. Yeah, no, neither can I. I've seen it three times. I can. I have no idea what he's saying in that. I actually went to the IMD, IMDb uh, page of this film in the quotes section, and I don't know. There doesn't seem to be anything in there. I don't think anybody knows what he's saying, which is probably for the best. It's cool like that. But getting back to, to Hardy proper, um, he's he's really interesting. It's certainly... Yeah, this is kind of an interesting situation. I mean, he's so much so much of a different actor from Mel Gibson. He's probably an actor with a lot more range. I think Gibson certainly, um, although I do like him as an actor on the whole, he does maybe coast a little bit on his on his charm. You know, he's sort of got that swagger about him. You know, I don't know if Tom Hardy is someone we can describe as someone with any particular amount of swagger per se. Uh, although I'm sure if you asked him to show off some swagger he could do it i mean i'm convinced he's that good of an actor um but it's true we don't know exactly how long after beyond the thunderdome this takes place but it must be a significant amount of time because he's basically a, an animal he's a beast he growls more than anything else uh during the first half of this movie so i think what we're left with is is an actor uh being asked to really deliver a specifically physical performance uh you know the the eyes uh the the, the physical uh, the body language uh, rather i should say uh his 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 uh indecipherable muttering sometimes and it it makes for i'm gonna say a fun performance if a little bit odd it, you know you don't there aren't a lot of mainstream blockbuster films released nowadays with the the character whose name is in the title behaves like this for about 60 minutes of the movie. It's a little weird. Um, but I, I do like him. Uh, I, I, I like him as, as Max, but it is a little bit difficult to gauge how well he's doing just because it's such a peculiar performance. Uh, it's not like any of the other actors in the movie. I mean, I love Charlize Theron. I love Nicholas Holt. I think they're doing great, great work, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to them in greater detail in, in the moments to come. I mean, is Tom Hardy giving a great performance in this movie? I don't know. As a very bestial Mad Max, it works. I'll give, I'll give that much credit. Hmm. Well, first of all, the movie is called Fury Road. I mean, Mad Max is just an extension to the title because it's part of the Mad Max franchise, just like the third film is called Beyond Thunderdome and the second film is called World Warrior. No different than Star Wars, Empire Strikes back return of the jedi right um i don't think i like the actor tom hardy better in this role than i do mel gibson in a role of mad max i like tom hardy the actor better than i do mel gibson in general i think though that the way the character is written for mad max in this film is incredibly interesting as opposed to the first three films. I mean, okay, the franchise is called Mad Max, right? And so you you expect that this character is sort of 
mad or has gone mad. And despite the fact that we've seen all of these terrible things happen to him in the past, specifically in that first movie, which has the darker and most bleakest tone of all four films, he doesn't really go mad. I mean, in the first film, he has his revenge on like Toe Cutter and Johnny the Boy, but that's about it. And in the second film, he's basically helping a uh, community t- along to, to help them like escape and in the third film well I mean the third film he, help, he helps Peter Pan and his Lord of the Flies crew but he's never he never comes across as like some mad crazy sadistic violence anti-hero that he's built to be but in this movie he actually is sort of mad I mean he has these like weird visions and he hears voices in his head and he can't speak properly and you know, there's this whole debate about, is this a reboot? Is it a sequel? Does it take place in the same universe? Is this the same character? Is it a different character? There's this really stupid fan theory going around about how it's the kid from the road warrior who grew up to be this guy, but he's pretending to be Mad Max because he's the person he idolizes. That's I hate, dumb. I hate those fan theories. This is not fucking Star Wars. This is one of the reasons why I hate Star Wars, right? <laughs> Fuck those fan theories. That's that is dumb. It doesn't matter. Okay, if you really want to look closely, he's dressed exactly like him. He has exact same leg brace. He has exact same scars. You know, he uses the same weapons and drives the same car. It's the same freaking character. It does take place a certain amount of time afterwards, so we don't know what's happened in between Thunderdome and Fury Road. You know, a lot of things could have happened that have that have driven this guy to have actually finally gone insane. And the thing about this film is that he feels like a caged animal, right? And George Miller's talked about this a lot in his interviews, and he's trying to find a way to break free, not just physically, but like mentally, because even his mind seems like it's like trapped and locked in these terrible, terrible thoughts, and he's just going mad. And so the movie opens and there's this great prologue and then he's captured and he's chained and not just chained, but he's got this fucking metal brace over his head, which is he looks like an animal. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just it's crazy. It's so cruel. And as as the movie progresses, especially when we do start the, the, the big, huge chase, which is essentially the movie. He starts to slowly untie himself. And when I say untie himself, it's because he's he's handcuffed and he's shackled and, he, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it takes him like what, Simon, like 30 minutes, I would say, to finally break completely free. I would say it's not until at least the 40 at least the 40 minute mark that he actually I mean, Furiosa gives him like a, a nail file or something. Yeah. And that's what he event, eventually finally while he's casually strolling on top of the rig. Yeah. Um, he like finally jimmies it open that that feels like it's at least 45 minutes because that's not that's not even still until after he encounters all of them and eventually sort of starts to gain their trust which takes a while we also sort of skipped over the part where while he's chained uh he's having his blood fed to nux who uh it's not uh, it's it's not like immediately clear or wasn't immediately clear to me um on the first viewing but all those war boys uh it's it are essentially dying um, yeah, they they uh, I mean, all the characters who are sort of in uh, Morton Joe's orbit or many of them uh, are clearly uh, they clearly suffer from radiation poisoning uh, at, at the very least. And Nux himself has has two sort of tumors on his neck. Who he's who, I, I forget their names, but he's named them and they have little smiley faces on them. <laughs> I loved that. That is not um, funny. It is funny. No, it's, it's a little not. bit. It's he's a little like, bit funny. He's like my favorite character in this film. Like, I mean, as much as I kind of sort of like Tom Hardy in this movie, not as much as Mel Gibson in the original films. Um, I really like Nicholas Holt as Nux, and like I gotta say that in terms of like who I was more emotionally invested in, like who I actually like 
cared for the most and which character I was so scared wouldn't make it to the end of the movie and would most likely die. It was Nux because as much as I think we can all agree, we love Furiosa, which I think we're saving for last because it's about saving the best for last, right? Yep. Uh, Nux is the one character, the one man in this movie who I totally fell in love with. He's just such a, I'm going to say beautiful person. Like he's like this, war boy who doesn't know any better and he's raised to believe in these false gods and he is dying and so he thinks that you know it doesn't really matter if he for example has to commit suicide for his cause because he's going to go to nirvana and like he's going to live the afterlife and it's going to be fine and dandy and and then he has this like sort of love interest which is played by elvis presley's daughter in the movie granddaughter granddaughter Granddaughter, sorry (laughs) whatever It's not Lisa Marie Presley. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, and and like and you know, for a movie that moves so fast and it's essentially ninety nine percent action, the fact that they can actually make me care for this love interest for like not only Nux but the girl that he you know clearly likes, you know, like there's there's emotions and feelings between these two characters. And the fact that it's actually Nux who makes the ultimate sacrifice at the end of the film. It's not Fierosa. It's not Mad Max. It's not anyone. It's him. He has to die in order for them to finally survive those very last five minutes. And I know he was always prepared and ready to die, but I just fell in love with that character. And I'm a huge fan of Nicholas Holt, you know, period. I think his performance was like at the top of his game. You know, it's 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 really hard to look like 500 extras. You know, there's 500 extras running around on set, and you look exactly like them. Like you're you're bald, and you're you look like you got white paint splattered all over your face and your body. And you dress exactly like everyone else, and yet you stand out. Like you have to be an amazing actor to do that, and he does it. Well, I I think uh, first of all, it's nothing like anything else we've seen him do. I mean, if you think about him and. Um in the tom ford movie a single man oh he's amazing amazing a million years removed from that uh so that's always impressive what i uh, but i sort of a more general thing with the war boys that i was really impressed with was the fact that uh there's really only one villain in the movie and that's a morton joe everyone else is just kind of a victim in one way or the other like as you mentioned these these these, uh war boys who are just sort of indoctrinated and made to feel as though the they're only their only goal in life is to is to get to Valhalla and they can only do that by essentially uh you know by finding conquest in battle and they even have a ritual where they spray themselves with this uh silver spray paint that I'm willing to bet they believe has some sort of uh some sort of like steroid property but it's just a placebo that's just my idea it's not in the movie yeah uh, but like it, I'm sure it's just you know cancerous paint anyway um, you know, they, they, they spray themselves in the face and then they, then, then they die gloriously in battle. And that's how you get to Valhalla. And it's, it's a, it, one of the, one of my favorite de- details about the script is that Nux, I believe twice or three times, uh, sprays himself and believes he's about to, he, he's about to do that. And every time he fails in the bet in the best one, he jumps on top of the war rig. Oh, yeah. And it, right when he's finally met in Morton Joe, which is like the biggest thing in his life. And then he jumps on and he just gets. He just gets caught immediately and fails, and Immortan Joe yells "mediocre," and uh, which you can which you can barely hear over the over the soundtrack. But I'm I'm glad I, I was able to pick up on that both times, and uh, and there's just he's so pathetic that he actually becomes endearing, 
and w- and really the only reason that he ends up on the side of of our heroes is that he's lost all other options because he's he's burned all his bridges with with his master and he just he's he's become this i think the reason you like him uh so much ricky besides the fact that he's played by nicholas holt is that he's there's no dog in this movie but he's kind of the dog of this movie <laughs> oh my god what is that supposed to mean you love dogs, and he's the dog of this movie. I don't think dogs are beautiful and sexy. There's a difference. Okay, f- fair enough. There's a difference, but he's but he plays the function of like he's just so he's such a poor, like 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 misunderstood. Like but by the time he's actually in the rig and he's holed up with with uh, Riley Q, and uh, and he's just he's just like in the fetal position, like oh my life is over and I've got tumors and everything's really bad. And then like of course they're gonna forge a connection because he's just so pathetic. Anyway, I mean, eventually he redeems himself. He's, he's only but mis, he's only pathetic because he's misguided. He's not exactly literally pathetic. I mean, okay, he, yeah, yeah, he's totally misguided, but he's also young and he was born into this like crazy world and raised oh, yeah, to believe these crazy his, things. It's but, not his fault. But I want to call him pathetic because he, because of what he accomplishes in such a short period of time during this movie. I mean, he accomplishes much more than anyone else. I would say of all the characters in his film, who accomplishes more than him? Well, and Nobody. maybe maybe he captures real- Mad Max. Then he's got Mad Max, like has his like own personal blood donor slave. Blood then man. he saves the day at the very end. He falls in love. Like I mean, he like he does it all. This is actually, I think that's a good bridge to start talking about Furiosa because uh, one of the things that I think Richard Brody, uh, who is one of the few sort of dissenting voices, was talking about that he didn't like about the film was that the movie skips over or never talks about certain things that he thought could have made it um, a richer movie, which I guess is, is, is one point of view. Uh, one of those things, I forget whether it's uh, something he explicitly said or not, but I think it was hinted at. Uh, Furiosa is essentially uh, one of Immortan Joe's right-hand people. So it's clear um, that she's had to do terrible things mm-hmm. to even to be able to get to this position where she can break out and and liberate these uh, these people. Mm-hmm. She and, makes it very clear in the movie, though. She uh, talks about redemption. I, I thought yeah. she yeah, like, there's there's one specific scene where she straight up says in very few words, but makes it very clear that she's done terrible things and she's at fault for the harm of all of these people, specifically the women she's trying to like save. Right, which to me that was enough. Like hey, it we, was we enough, don't... and if he didn't pick up on that, well, then that's his problem. Right. Anyway, um, and that's sort of one of the things that as that that in general I loved about this movie there's so many uh th- there are so many uh, aspects of the world that aren't delved into in detail but Miller and uh, and his and his writing team if you ask them about it they'll tell you all about it um it's not on it's not evident when you when you it's not always evident when you watch it they don't tell you about it but you still get this feeling of a world that is lived in and has been considered right down to the most minute detail. Since we're sort of generally, or rather I'm trying to segue generally into, into the topic of Furiosa, um, a lot of people have talked about sort of the feminist content of the film, and blah, 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 and that's all well and good. Um, but there was an aspect of it that I didn't even think about that I wanted to mention. Uh, there was a Tumblr post that I believe went up yesterday uh, by this girl who is a, a, a fetal amputee. She's, uh, she's always had... Um, uh, basically, a, a similar uh, amputation to the one that uh, that Charlize Theron's, Theron, ah, Charlize Theron's character Furiosa has. Uh-huh. Uh, Fur- Fur- Furiosa obviously has a kick-ass robotic arm. This girl doesn't. Not the point. Anyway, uh, and she was talking about how um, she had never th- thought before that you know because she's she's a, a white woman. Uh, this this girl she had never felt like she had not been represented on screen before. But then she saw this character 
who uh, who has uh, a disability that is never ever once referenced in the film, uh, who is able to kick ass along with everyone else, who has what is for the universe this uh, this realistic implement that is that is incredibly useful, uh, and who is never ever even close to pitied uh, for her disability, and she thought it was uh, incredibly moving. So there were just aspects of, of the character that would never even have occurred to me that are just cool as hell. Yeah, it's true. It's almost like a, I wouldn't say a blink and you miss it thing. It, you know, the, the, uh, there are s- several scenes in which uh, Furiosa is not wearing her extended uh, mechanical arm. Uh, but it's true. It's never actually explicitly brought up. It's sort of just part of who she is. And it's, it's up to the, to the viewer to fill in to fill the dots. Uh, to, Guys, it took me 20 minutes to realize she had a mechanical robotic hand. Oh, really? Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's a compliment to the filmmaker and the actress. Like, I did not realize it until I think, maybe it, was, maybe it was even more than 20 minutes in until, like, they actually stopped moving at one point in time. It was, okay, it was, okay, it was right after what I think is the best visual gag in the movie when Max... He's staggering out of the desert and he sees the wives for the very first time. And it's sort of like in semi slow motion, but not really. Yeah. Like that, I think, was the best visual gag in the movie. And that's when my whole audience burst out laughing, but in a positive way. And then it was right after that moment that I realized that her character had this robotic arm. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah and and also crucially there's no scene where where he's like how'd you lose the arm it's like it's the it's the fucking apocalypse people I, are losing arms yeah, it a, happens yeah. uh so that was something i that was something i really enjoyed and that was just i'm just saying it was an angle to the character that that never would have even occurred to me uh and there's so many things like that throughout the film that, that are, are that are being done in a totally refreshing way yeah like my favorite scene in the film is when Mad Max takes like three shots and there's only like four bullets left in the gun. And we know this because it's one of the few lines of dialogue that she actually has to say throughout the whole entire film. Right. And so there's like one bullet left and he's about to take the shot, but then he realizes, no, I've missed three times. Let her take the shot. And then she takes a yeah. shot. And she, she nails the target. I was just like, fucking a man. Like seriously, how amazing is that? Sorry. And that's another scene where, you know, she has, she has one arm how is she going to stabilize the other the uh the gun she uses max's shoulder no comment he just does it hey girl <laughs> <laughs> you can use my shoulder yeah totally. no, she's, she's she's really uh great in the in this film and and charlie's theron is given a really really good performance in this movie i, I love how it, it, it's interesting i feel as though in a lot of uh major films like this action movies where the filmmakers feel like there has to be at least one female character uh, and because she's uh, tagging along uh, with the boys you know she has to be or she has, she has to uh, <clears throat> strive to be twice the badass that all, that all the men are which you know, has value to it I'm not I'm not saying filmmakers shouldn't necessarily do that but what I liked about this movie is the fact that Furiosa is obviously is a badass. I mean, she she's a hair away from really beating the shit out of Mad Max. You know, when they first meet up, that's that's a wait, wait. By the way, which is a really cool fight. The only the only fisticuffs in the movie, and it's a really good fisticuffs. Um, but what I liked about this mo- uh, about her character in this movie is that 
they seem to dial her badassery, let's call it, just to the right amount. Like she's still, how should I put this? She still recognizes his value. She's not, well, I'm Furiosa. I worked with the Morton Joe, follow my order, you know, put up or shut up. Let's let's put it that way. Like she isn't that type of character either. You know, there's that nice little moment uh, in one of these fantastic day for night uh, sequences where they've they've arrived they've met the the many mothers as they're called although these ones are a little bit older than what she was probably expecting them to be and it's a day for night shot and she mad max is i don't know he's sitting alone as he's wont to do i suppose and she comes up to him and says you know there's a bike you know can i talk to you for a minute you know there's a bike you know with your name on it we haven't you know come follow us like i like that little moment because it indicated that yeah, she's a badass. She has a mission. Uh, you know, she's a woman who's going to take charge, quote unquote. But she's not like uh, she's not like merciless, mercilessly a badass. She she recognizes the good in other people. I, I felt that make her uh, that made her uh, really three dimensional, and I really really appreciated appreciated that. I find every so often in these in these big action movies, while the inclusion. Of a female co-star who can who can tag along with the boys is appreciated, no doubt, no argument there. I find sometimes they'll overdo it, or it'll be a bit miscalculated, or it'll be it'll come out across as a bit shallow. Let's say I never got that impression in Fury Road. I felt like Furiosa was very very three dimensional, and I, I really respected that about her character. The the film doesn't feel cynical at all, and it doesn't feel like like an exploitation film. But yet, based on what it is like you know even just walking into the film like i thought i was gonna watch something that was balls to the wall action i was just gonna be totally like re- i was actually worried going into the screening to be totally honest with you i thought it was gonna get sort of like a sucker punch right you know um oh, wow. Zach, Zach snyder sucker punch like i love george miller but i thought i thought well maybe because he was given 150 million dollars maybe the studios would like interfere and god knows what would have happened and blah 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 and who knows it would have been a giant mess and the trailers were too good to be true type thing like i was expecting a a fantastic action set piece like i was expecting a a fantastic car chase sequence but i was worried walking into the film and and then i realized that this movie despite the fact that it's falls to the wall action and is populated by these crazy over the top devilish like sometimes cartoonish just like villains and 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 henchmen and and extras and what have you like from the war boys to to joe to you know i, I can't remember the name of his uh, right hand man who's oh, uh, dickus erectus or whatever it is yeah right that guy but this is actually a really sweet and tender film <laughs> like yeah. it really is like and i i felt it pulling on What's the what's the express the heartstrings? Strings. I felt it pulling on my heartstrings, and it's also because Nicholas Holt has the most beautiful eyes in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also because Charlize Theron is so kick ass, and I don't know, just like every single character. Like, I mean, we get, we get to meet these old ladies about at least an hour into the film. It's like the midway point, right? It's right about the right before the the point in the film where they decide to turn around and go all the way back. And I was just like, I don't know who these ladies are, but I totally dig them. And at one point, one of them dies, and we like the camera really centers on this character and focuses on this character for like a good five minutes. Like it keeps on cutting back to this character who we've just met, who's dying, 
And I felt so incredibly bad because she was dying because I was like hoping that she would have survived and made it to the very end of the, uh, at least, at least to the very end when they reached the Citadel again, but no, she dies. And I was just like, that is so sad. It, and it's you, at, Yeah. Are you talking about the oldest mother? Yeah. Because, uh, I wanted to specifically mention, uh, the younger, possibly the youngest of the many mothers, uh, who also dies with the black hair. Yeah. Uh, you remember who I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. I, I have to mention her specifically also because you brought up Zack Snyder. Um, you may remember a while ago, uh, George Miller was trying to get a Justice League movie off the ground. Really? Yeah, that yeah. that happened um, until you know the whole um, what the current situation happened. Anyway, um, so when he was putting together this Justice League movie that never happened, uh, he he was at least at the casting stage, and she was his Wonder Woman. And one of the reasons, uh, as I understand it, uh, that the whole thing never came off was because uh, fans were pissed off at the fact that that he was casting these unknowns as these as you know these, these uh, mythic heroes and you see her in the movie and you're like damn a she would have been a great wonder woman b now that we don't have george miller's justice league we have zack snyder's dc verse so way to go yeah anyway um, so many things that Miller uh, has has been attached to, as I understand it, and that just never came off because they didn't trust him enough or whatever. Um, at, can, can I can I bring up something uh, a little g- joke that someone made on Twitter? Is this the first movie to ever feature Chekhov's guitar, as opposed to Chekhov's gun? Yeah. Uh, oh, we haven't. Oh. We somehow haven't mentioned the guitar, guys. That's another wonderful little touch in this movie. It's. I, I I sometimes get the terms mixed up. You have diegetic and non-diegetic uh, sound or music in movies. Diegetic being uh, sound that's captured on screen. It's sort of in the world of the movie, and I, I think non-diegetic is sound... like soundtrack. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Like 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 a wire would use non-diegetic music and sounds sure. because it's all right. coming, say, for example, from the car radio. But there's no actual soundtrack and or score to the show. Sure, that's that's a that's a pretty good example actually, and I love how this movie actually util- actually kills two birds with one stone, with respect to that guitar character. He he looks cool. He looks freaky, especially when yeah, he but, takes the mask off. Right, but, but that, the, that's a neat little touch. But the Doof Warrior isn't providing the whole entire score for the movie. No, 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 no. But it, it, I. I haven't listened to the score proper. It'd be interesting to know if that little if his death metal guitar riffs are actually part of the score or not. I guess that would be the, the telltale sign if it's actually part of the, uh, the movie. The, as I understand it, the score was split between uh, Junkie XL, who I think handles the more sort of rock slash dubstepy aspects of the score, which there's a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. There was also a, sort of a more conventional composer, and you can hear him taking over for other parts of the film as well. Uh, and both, and by the way, the score in general is is fantastic, uh, at least in line with with the other scores, uh, with the better scores, I should say, in the series. Um, when you talk about whether whether or not the music is diegetic or not, um, there there are long sequences during a chase where it feels like you're getting non diegetic music, and then it'll just happen to pan over to the drums and the amps, and you realize that it's all actually happening. <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, uh, during so the chase, and it's incredible. That's so clever. Yeah, and um, I was reading about one another one of those aspects of the world of the world building that Miller Miller and his screeners have thought about but aren't telling you uh, is this idea that um, that this guy was like uh, was was a was a miner who went blind and happened to have a guitar and Immortan Joe was just like walking around one day and happened to hear him and thought oh 
I'm going to have him essentially leading my armies and pumping them up in the same way that um, that you would have. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not a not a not a jester, but like a like a piper in a, yeah. in, a in a medieval setting, like so, someone someone to lead the charge. Uh, and it's it's a it's a very old concept given given this sort of post 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 modern spin. And it, uh, it 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 on paper it should be this like Zack Snyder um, like horror show. It should be an awful. If I read that in a screenplay, I would think this is a terrible idea. This is the first thing you need to lose, and yet it totally works. Yeah. Oh, and it shoots flames. <laughs> you didn't even mention that part. <laughs> yeah, I, and and the crazy thing is, during this high speed road battle, you have these war boys, like these warriors, on long poles that bend, and they have to find a way to get on these poles and somersault on top of the war rig oh. while it's moving at top speed. And again, that is done lie like those are stuntmen and stunt women doing it. and he i i believe from what i'm told and from what i've read he hired like cirque du soleil to help him perform these stunts or to help the stuntmen and stunt women perform these stunts and i was reading an interview with him and he was saying that initially when they wanted to make the movie way back when fox was supposed to fund it they didn't think that they can actually do this because back then they didn't have the technology to, to make it fail safe so if something went wrong then they knew the stuntmen wouldn't die but then they found ways to get around it. So they would still have these one takes. But, you know, if something did go wrong, the person wouldn't die and they would just have to like reshoot, which would be a bitch, which they didn't want to do because they didn't really have it in their budget, you know, even though they had $150 million. But they got most of it done, from my understanding, in like one take. And the, uh, the stuntman who was in like the original film, apparently he broke the Guinness World Record for. I think it was like craziest stunt in which he had to flip the car eight to 12 times in a row. It was like during rehearsal, like I think they actually shot it. So it appears in film, but it was actually him just rehearsing the stunt. Yeah. And he flipped it like eight and a half times. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, the flip you're referring to is, is more or less the one that opens the film, right? When yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's when uh, Max's uh, interceptor, interceptor flips yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, so it happened during a rehearsal for the opening sequence of the film. Right. And it flipped over eight and a half times, and it happened to land on its wheels, like, right in front of the camera. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so, out of fluke. so within the first three minutes of the movie, you're seeing a world record being broken. And I love the fact that you have a 70-year-old director racing alongside, and he's speeding in this, like, dune buggy, which is zooming out of control just so he can find the perfect shot. And he's coordinating the whole thing while driving this dune buggy. Like, he's got his headset on, and he's, like, talking to his cameraman. He's trying to get the camera shots and trying to orchestrate the whole entire sequence. Like, that is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Even in the twilight of his years, he's still quite the trailblazer. The last thing I want to mention, since I want to get back to um, men's rights people and making them angry, um, I, I think one of the things that, like, especially on the second viewing, the thing that, that really blew me away was I've been reading um, this Bell Hooks collection about, uh, about masculinity and, um, and patriarchy and how uh, patriarchy hurts everyone, including and perhaps even especially men. And, uh, and this notion of, uh, of toxic masculinity and how, uh, and how men are socialized. And maybe it's just because I've been reading this book, but I think this movie captures in, in, in terms of in a, in a very Hollywood way that's very accessible, 
the way that Immortan Joe's uh, policies and worldview really helps poison everything and everyone around him mm. uh, so that, you know, his every, everyone is irradiated and, and, and bloated and horrible. His whole family is, is in disarray. These war boys are all tortured and looking for an outlet. And these women are all uh, are all sort of in, in fear and in thrall to, to Joe uh, until they can break free. There's even a point at which uh, one of them uh, toys with running back and thinks, oh, he'll forgive us or whatever. But, you know, obviously that's not going to work. And more than any other Hollywood film that I can think of recently, like this movie really captures uh, how poor socialization of men can just absolutely destroy a society and create this whole sort of poisonous system. Uh, and it, it and it does it without beating you over the head at all, and uh, that's just that that to me was especially on rewatch the most fascinating aspect of the whole movie. Yeah, but this movie is in sexist in the in the sense that it's attacking men in general because it's, there are still two heroes here who are men, and I'm talking about Nux and Max. And to me, that's like a positive view of what being masculine is. I mean, to the point where you have Nux, who's basically a boy becoming a man, and he becomes the hero at the end of the day. And I'm sorry, but even when Max let's furiosa take the one final shot to me that's a very manly thing to do that's like what a man should do like it, it's about respecting women and respecting yourself and making the right decision and not being selfish and you know what i mean like yeah absolutely it's, it's not like there's this negative view of every single man in this movie it just so happens like yes the leaders of this specific society the, 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 the who live at the citadel are are corrupt and uh, but but that doesn't mean that every single person that's living in and around there and or all the heroes in this movie are also it's not exactly the case and then i i kind of like hinted at this when we were reviewing the first two movies on our last podcast about how it has like a different view of what masculinity is i'm talking about the franchise in general as opposed to most hollywood action franchises and you know it and we can like we can tease about, for example, like the costumes that they wear and the clothes that they wear in the first films or the kind of characters that they are or the personas and what have you. But like they still have some very positive like role models that are men. It's just that this movie gives us that and it gives us Charlize Theron's Furiosa, which is one of the greatest characters ever put to screen, period. And it's and thankfully, we have this fantastic actress who, who was lucky enough to, to play her and bring her to life because she's just mind-blowing in this film. Um, if you pair this up with, uh, with, her, with her performance in Young Adult, I think you can easily make a case for her as being the best, I was going to say American actress of her generation, but she's South African. So maybe, yeah. just, maybe just actress. <laughs> yeah, she can be. I, I'm a big fan of, of Charlize Theron. You could, I mean, you could cast her in a complete piece of shit movie and sh her scenes would at least be adequate because she's in them. I I'm convinced she's that good. Would you go so far as to say that this is really her movie and not Max's film, or do you think that they shared a film? Because Max does take the passenger seat, so to speak, for a, a good chunk of the movie. Like, I would say the middle chunk of the movie. But towards the end of the film, I mean, he's the one that's riding... And, and steering and driving the the war rig to to the citadel to to safe haven you know what i mean and and um it's like at the end of the film it's not like she saves mad max it's more like because of nux and mad max she and the wives are still saved i think there's a there's a fair partnership going on i i can see where you're coming from if that's if that's the argument one wants to make 
I think the the film reaches uh, a solid compromise in that respect. Uh, you know, what's happened in The Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome and now in Fury Road, and we alluded to this a little bit in the previous episode, as I recall, is the fact that Max is often not <clears throat> not like an empty vessel necessarily. The guy, he does have something of a personality and something of a backstory, but he does seem to just plop like right into these plots uh, which are crazy and ludicrous and over the top. And very, very often, and I think you can make the case, it's, it's still the case here in Fury Road where uh, the characters around him tend to have a little bit more personality. They tend to matter a little bit more with respect to how the story is going to go, how the plot is going to go, and the characterizations and so on and so forth. And Max is sort of that driving force that that seems to be at the center of attention, whether he likes it or not. Uh, and that continues in this movie. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why, maybe to get back to your original question, uh, Ricky, it, it feels like Furiosa is the main character. And in a way... Yeah, in, in a way, she kind of is. Uh, but it, it always comes back to Max in some fashion or another. I mean, even in the, as I was rewatching The Road Warrior a couple weeks back, I mean, there are long stretches of that movie where it doesn't feel like he's doing a whole lot. Sort of like when he's uh, crouched uh, or, or lying uh atop of that little hill observing what's going on in the little compound where they're pumping gas and they're being attacked by Lord Humongous's gang. Like, Max isn't doing that much in that sequence, but it's still, it always comes back to Max in some fashion or another at the end of the day, even though those characters around him are maybe the ones we tend to remember a little bit more. And I think it's it's fair to argue that when you leave the theater, uh, after seeing Fury Road, that Furiosa and, and even Nux, to a degree, are the characters that you remember a little bit more. But Max still has his place. Uh, even though it's, you know, he doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, I guess it goes back to that old expression of actions speak louder than words. And that's where Max becomes important. So at the end of the day, it's still a Mad Max movie. But yeah, kind of like in The Road Warrior, where the feral kid and the leader of that compound and the, me the, 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 the mechanic who had no more legs were a little bit more entertaining. And in Thunder, in uh, Thunderbird, what the hell am I talking about? In, in Beyond Thunderdome, you know, Aunt Entity is more entertaining and Master Blaster are more entertaining. It still comes back to Max. And it's the same thing in Fury Road. So it's a fair question that you're posing, Ricky. But, you know, I, I, I have no problem with Furiosa maybe being slightly more memorable because that's sort of been the trend of the franchise anyways. Well, and sort of more broadly, when you think about, um, especially Mad Max is sort of the outlier in this case, but Road Warrior, Thunderdome, Fury Road are all pretty much the same in the sense that, I mean, they're completely different movies, but they're the same structurally in the sense of Max is in the wasteland. Max either is abducted or comes upon a situation that he gets integrated into. With the help of Max, um, to various degrees, the situation is resolved. Max heads back into the wasteland. 
Mm. They're structurally the same, even though in every other sense, they're totally different. Um, and I mean, that's the reason it ultimately gets to be a Mad Max movie because Mad Max shows up, plays his part, leaves. That's after, after the first Mad Max movie, that's what a Mad Max movie is. Uh, so it, 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 at the very least, it satisfies that requirement. And in this film, like, although she might be the scene stealer, and I think that has a lot to do with the, the performance from the actress and as compared to the performance from Tom Hardy, and maybe that's the direction that George Miller gave the two actors, I'm not entirely sure. But he still, not more than once, but in, I would say, like, three or four times, actually saves the day. Like, he's the one that tells him to turn around and go back. Because if he wasn't there and she actually found a way to to survive and actually meet the who are the old ladies again they're called the, the many um, mothers yeah exactly if she actually made it that far she would have continued to move forward and that would have led nowhere anyway uh we are we have now crossed the 80 minute mark why don't we just quickly ask what don't you like about the movie simon um there's a shot near the end <laughs> there's a shot near the end because um, th- th- for many people, this film was presented in 3D. I saw it in 2D both times. And there's this one shot after um, after Nux deliberately crashes the truck where you have um, the steering wheel and the guitar kind of like Looney, oh. Looney Tunes bend out into the screen. And it kind of seems like it's the 3D money shot. Oh. Um, and it looks dumb in 2D. That was like pretty much that I didn't really care for that shot. There's one shot in the movie I'm not crazy about. Yeah, it looked pretty cool in 3D, but I got to admit, I was still not crazy about it either. What I didn't like about this film is when we do get these visions, like these flashbacks from Mad Max, there's like a little girl, right, that's calling his name and she's talking and saying God knows what, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, who is this little girl? I don't think that's meant to be for Mad Max, though. It, who Whose vision is that? Oh, I mean, it's... Uh... It is. It's Max's. Oh, are you? Oh, sorry, I'm. I'm. I'm misinterpreting you. Do you take that to be a vision of of the kid he lost in the movie Mad Max? Well, no, because that kid was like not even a year old. Okay, good. Just checking. Uh, <laughs> I was just gonna say that didn't make any sense. No, because uh, what 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 I'm thinking is because there's always a backstory in George Miller's head. So right. somewhere in between Thunderdome and Mad Max, he must have met a little girl that died. And I yes. think maybe because he wasn't able to actually save this little girl, that's why he started going crazy. Mm. Uh, well, I th- it seems kind of like it was maybe the last straw or like one more yeah. thing. It was the, you're yeah. playing Kerplunk and it's the straw. It's the, it's the, you know. Well, I guess if I can share nitpicks, you know, it would have been kind of funny if there had been a theme song. Uh, I guess maybe there wasn't a whole lot of the V8, inter, uh, the Ford uh, Interceptor. It, it's it's there, but it's very much of a background vehicle in this movie. And maybe my, my last little nitpick, uh, you know, not enough Zoe Kravitz. You know what I'm saying? Could we use a little bit more on that? You know what I'm saying? But, hey, man, this is, uh, it's basically, as action movies go, this is as perfect as it gets. I'm super happy this comes out in the summer. It feels like we're so bombarded by uh, these uh, blockbuster extravaganzas, extravaganzas, excuse me, on a weekly basis from early May to late August. And it seems to me we, we seem to be um, numb to the spectacle because it, they really aren't much of a spectacle anymore. We've seen it all. We've seen all these digital effects. We've seen these stories before. We've seen these 
these directorial flourishes before. Uh, and here is a movie that has blown everybody away. And uh, really, guys, whoever's listening out there, whoever downloads this episode, uh, we implore you. To me, the big takeaway from this film, and we really should be wrapping this up, is that uh, this is why you keep the this is why you keep the veterans around. This is why you keep the guys around who have been at it for a long time and who know how to put something together, um, because they uh, they can be here to school you. And to me, that's what this film is. It's it's George Miller schooling everyone on how a movie like this uh, not only should be made but but could be made. He's 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 expanding people's uh, horizons about how they can combine uh, digital and practical effects and how they can use, um, this seemingly very well-worn setting and set of tropes and do something totally new with it. Uh, and uh, I'm just, I'm just glad that, that people have responded as much as they have. Uh, and that's about it for me. Uh, we should, this is, we've gone insanely long, so we should be wrapping up quickly. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sucker howl, uh, Edgar, you are at between the seats. Yes. Uh, no longer. Oh, actually. no a, longer. That's fine. I'm on Facebook. I'm at soundonsight.org. I'm still a presence on the internet. Maybe just not as uh, ferocious as before, but uh, you can, you can find me if you look for me. All right. And, uh, Ricky runs the official Twitter feed of sound on site at sound on site. Of course, visit soundonsight.org for all kinds of content. Uh, thank you all so much for listening uh, to this last regular episode of the show. Uh, there will be another recording. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. How do you know this place even exists? I was born there. So why'd you leave? I didn't. I was taken as a child. Stolen. You'd done this before? Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And them? They're looking for hope. What about you? Redemption.